Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personality shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. Welcome to Special Edition. I'm Paula Degnan. June is Alzheimer's Awareness Month. Dr. Gad Marshall will be with us to tell us about a new trial for Alzheimer's research and treatment. We're also going to get a wrap-up from Dr. Jaywan Rue, President and CEO of Geisinger, on the pandemic situation. You may have been seeing the announcements on local TV stations and the chair of the FCC Incentive Auction Task Force is here to tell us why scanning your TV is going to be important. The fight against illegal drugs continues. The U.S. Attorney for the Middle District of Pennsylvania will be here to give us the latest update on some arrests that happened this week. And we'll also hear from the mayor of Pittston, moving into another phase for reopening and what that is going to mean. But first, it was a busy day on Tuesday, primary election day. Scott Seaborg, the Pennsylvania director of All Voting is Local, takes a look at what the primary was like. We know that voters had to face a lot of uh, hurdles at every turn to the ballot this primary election. We had a pandemic that, you know, while is looking better in some counties, and we also had sort of a generational uprising in protests. And, you know, those were two things that combined to, I think, make it slightly more challenging to get to the polls. Uh, We know that it's laudable that Pennsylvania processed almost 2 million mail-in ballot applications. And we also know that it's the responsibility of our uh, officials, our election officials, to ensure measures are in place to enable voters to safely cast their ballots. And so, you know, we had uh, a real success with the volume of vote-by-mail ballots Uh, that were processed by the state. And I think that folks on the ground, especially those who chose to vote in person, faced some hurdles. Were you hearing any difficulties as far as people getting into the polls, any problem with the polls? Because, again, one of the other things was new voting machines in 22 counties, including in our area in Luzerne County. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, you know, I think that we experienced sort of the normal road bumps or speed bumps uh, as it relates to, you know, polls being open uh, in a lot of counties. And one thing that really, I think, affected folks' ability to find their polling place were the polling place consolidations. I know that in places like uh, Philadelphia and Allegheny County, uh, there were uh, lots and lots of voters sort of collapsed into, into I guess, sort of uh, larger precincts that are combined of the smaller, combined from the smaller ones, and uh, that made for some confusion, right? And I think we can acknowledge the challenges that counties and the state are facing right now with the pandemic uh, and also sort of be, uh, you know, confident and stern about the fact that we need more polling places, better plan to communicate that out with the public and more advanced uh, knowledge of when those changes are going to happen uh, as we approach the uh, general election. And as we are going to be approaching the general election, um, again, here in Pennsylvania, the opportunity, whether you needed to or not, have a mail-in ballot. Do you, as far as what you've been hearing from you know, the different people that you talk to, again, across the state, do you think that it was well-received? Do you think that um, – have you been hearing that maybe when November comes around, there's going to be more – people who are going to decide that mail-in balloting is okay? I think the thing that we're all sort of, you know, really surprised by is just the sheer volume. I mean, we're almost at 20 times the volume of the general election in 2016 from vote by mail. And, you know, if that's any indication, then, you know, we think it's prudent for counties in the state to really prepare for a much higher volume in the general election, right? We know Pennsylvania has been voting safely and securely with uh, absentee ballots for years and years, and now that the program has been expanded, uh, folks are able to, you know, really utilize that tool. Uh, one thing that we definitely want to see is the vote-by-mail online application translated into Spanish for folks who have limited English proficiency. And at the same time, we'd like the online application to allow for using the last four digits of your social security number uh, in addition to your Pennsylvania ID. Uh, either one uh, we think should be able to work. And that's really going to allow, uh, you know, everybody who's an eligible voter in Pennsylvania to utilize the tool. Talk about baptism by fire with this primary election <laughs> with, with so many different you just thought you had one and then all of a sudden something else came along and then a third and then a fourth so what does all voting is local pennsylvania looking forward to now as you go forward to november you did mention some of the things that uh you know may be able to help but now that all these you know the Prepare for a fist, I guess, if anything happens toward toward November. What what will your your organization be focusing on? Well, I think one thing was uh, painfully clear in terms of the vote by mail tool. Uh, communities of color don't have a legacy of using vote by mail in Pennsylvania, just like lots of other communities. Right? This is a new thing, and we're 
looking at early data and it's indicating that there needs to be more outreach to communities of color in Pennsylvania to talk about vote by mail and why it's a safe option and why it's a way to make your or how it's a way to make your voice heard uh, while you know making sure that your your ballot is secure. Um, and so we'll be looking to do that education as well as uh, looking to uh, you know call on officials in the state to uh, do a certain things around vote by mail balloting. Uh, one is provide a prepaid postage return envelope uh, with that vote by mail ballot. I think a lot of young folks aren't even sure what a stamp is uh, these days, and uh, yep. that is definitely a barrier, right? And so, you know, we're going to be taking a look at the primary as a test run for the general, identifying uh, areas uh, that were trouble spots and growth areas, and then, you know, really working with uh, the community in Pennsylvania to, to make sure that we're in a, the best possible place we can heading into the general election. The other thing, too, is um, the poll workers themselves. Obviously, in this election, there were a lot who decided on their own that they were not going to be able to participate because of the ongoing pandemic. So. Is there also going to be a push in order to get, again, more young people involved because eventually that is going to just make its way out where the people that have been working the polls for so many years are not going to be able to be there. And that in itself may cause another problem when you're thinking about people that are going to be able to go and vote who still want to go and vote in person. Yeah, I hear you. And I think, you know, that is a challenge facing election officials at all levels throughout the nation right now. You know, one thing that we believe is important is that, you know, if folks really feel a calling to sort of help with their community's sort of civic duty, then we think it's a great idea to, you know, consider working as a poll worker. I know that some of the wages uh, in counties have been raised as an incentive. And we also think it's really important to understand the county uh, or the entity's uh, sort of PPE and COVID practices and, you know, really ensure that as uh, anyone is engaging in this work, that they're keeping themselves safe, that they're keeping their families safe, while also, you know, really help, helping to lead Pennsylvania down the road to a successful election. Did you hear anything about that as far as people who were choosing to vote in person, whether there were any concerns about safety at polling places, whether people were not social distancing, whether I know uh, there were late ads that I, I heard different places that said, bring your own writing utensil, bring your own, bring it home with you or, you know, drop it off. So all of those things just seemed to go along, again, not as though it was being made up as it went along, but it was another, uh-oh, we have to think about this now. We have to think about that. We do know that the state furnished uh, each county and in turn each county furnished each polling location with PPE gear. And, you know, we definitely uh you know, think that's a, a great thing. There were a few instances of, you know, folks reporting that uh, there were a lack of masks or gloves in polling places, uh, and for the most part, uh, that PPE gear uh, was there in place. Uh, we also know that uh, in a, a few locations, there were some issues with uh, social distancing at the lines, and, you know, that didn't really come in as 
you know, a huge red flag. There were some instances of that, and I think that's something that it'll be important to work with uh, election officials on to ensure there are uh, blanket standards uh, and that everyone is following the really important uh, social distancing and PPE guidelines. And since we now have November to look forward to, I'm hoping that we will catch up with you several times again between now and then. Can you give our listeners just a quick overview of what the uh, all voting is local, of which you are the Pennsylvania State Director, what your group is all about, and how they might be able to reach out to you? Absolutely. So all voting is local. Pennsylvania fights to eliminate needless and discriminatory barriers to voting before they happen in an effort to build a democracy that works for everybody. Uh, you can definitely reach out to us on Twitter at, at allvotingislocal and allvotingislocal.org. Uh, we'd love to hear from you and connect with you and your community, and uh, we really, really appreciate uh, the time today. Thank you so much. Oh, absolutely. Do you, do you have any kind of a uh, local presence here in uh, northeastern Pennsylvania? You know, our staff are located in Allegheny County as well as in Philadelphia, and we are interested in building some outreach uh, in that area. And so I think you can expect uh, some vote-by-mail outreach as well as collaboration with uh, with partners that are already in the area. Awesome. Well, when you when you decide that you're coming up this way, you definitely let us know, and we'll, uh, we'll have the uh, welcome mat out for you. Will do. Thank you so much. While you've been watching TV, you may have seen some announcements from some local stations about having to rescan your TV if you use an antenna. Gene Cadeau is the chair of the FCC Incentive Auction Task Force and tells us why. One of the things that we do at the FCC is make sure that we use the nation's airwaves as efficiently as we can, and we've identified the TV spectrum that TV uh, stations use to broadcast their signals as an area we could use more efficiently and therefore free up some spectrum for wireless carriers. American consumers have ever-increasing demand for faster and faster speeds and more and more capacity for their wireless devices. So we're rearranging some TV stations across the country to use uh, less less uh, airwaves and more more efficiently and free up space for wireless carriers. So what that means is that if a viewer watches TV using an antenna, meaning a rooftop or an indoor uh, antenna, as opposed to cable or satellite subscription to get their local TV, they'll need to rescan the, their TVs each time this happens, so that their TV knows where to find the channels at their new place in the airwaves. When you talk about something like this happening, are there any possibilities that people are going to lose their channels? Uh, there should not be, no. What we uh, made sure we did when we reassigned st uh, frequencies to stations, we made sure that the new frequencies would allow them to broadcast the, to the same coverage area and the same population that they had before. Um, now, while the change is happening, sometimes there's a brief period of time when a station goes on to an interim antenna while they put their new antenna up on their tower, uh, that there may be some decrease in the coverage, but uh, ultimately it, will be, it should be the same. So it should be a seamless proposition from beginning to end. Right, and viewers uh, just need to know that they need to rescan their TVs when this happens to, uh, to find the, the channels. Now, when you say rescan, what exactly does that mean? 
Well, when a, a viewer sets up a TV to use an antenna for the first time, they need to scan the TV to find all of the available local channels. Uh, what that means is they uh, basically just go into the menu function on the remote control and uh, and scan the TV, and they had to do that when they set it up. And a rescan is exactly what it sounds like, which is to to redo that process so the TV can go out and find a local channel at its new home. The the channel numbers that viewers see are not changing. So if a viewer is used to watching, say, channel 22. Uh, it will still be channel 22, but the TV needs to be trained to find channel 22 at its new home in the air. Ah, okay. So it's it's more it's more or less for the TV's benefit rather than the than the viewer's benefit of of the change in the of the channel. Right. We we want to make this as seamless uh, for, for viewers as possible. So uh, stations really do want to continue to use the same channel numbers. So viewers who are used to, to tuning to channel. 22 or 64 or whatever whatever they're used to they'll continue to do it's just that the TV needs to be retrained and then how would someone know that this is either happening or has already happened that they would have to go and do this is there uh, a way Yes, so there's a couple different ways. This, the, the TV stations who are affected uh, have to give notice to their viewers at least 30 days in advance, so there'll be uh, public service announcements and on-screen text messages and other things that they use to make sure their viewers are aware of the change and what the date will be on which they'll make it. Um, we also have information on our FCC website, which is uh, www.fcc.gov slash TV Rescan, and there's a, a map a viewer can put uh, his or her zip code in and see which stations are locally available and whether uh, any of them are making the change and the, and the time frame. And then just generally a good rule of thumb is if a viewer uh, has an over-the-air antenna TV uh, and notices that a channel that they're used to seeing seems to have gone missing, uh, they should probably rescan, and hopefully that uh, is what happened, and that'll bring the channel back. But traditionally, you would only have to rescan once, correct? Well, it's always a good idea. It's sort of like rebooting a computer. Um, ah. It's probably a good idea to do it once in a while. Um, if a viewer hasn't done it in a couple of years, since maybe since they set up the TV the first time, they may find that there are actually more channels available locally for free than they knew they had because what the TV will do when it goes out in the air and scans, it goes through the whole range of possible channels. And local stations are bringing on what we call sub-channels or multicast channels all the time. And those are those, uh, if you watch over-the-air TV, you're used to seeing maybe channel 22.1 and .2 and .3. Well, those .2 and .3 channels are new streams of programming that uh, TV stations are putting out. So... Uh, it may be a happy circumstance to rescan so the uh, viewers can see that there are actually many more stations available than they thought. And I was just going to say that is it possible that when they when they do rescan they find out that gee I was wondering what happened to that one. So is this something that maybe people should do just on a normal basis instead of uh just accepting the fact that their TV is telling them everything that they think that it should be? Right, the TV's only only telling them what it found the last time it rescanned. So if a viewer rescans every couple of months or every year or so, they may find that new stations have come on that the TV doesn't know about. Ah, well, that's a surprise. 
Yeah. <laughs> a pleasant surprise, usually. Well, and the good news is these are all for free, right? They, you don't have to subscribe to them. These are all available over the air. So, yes, it's a good thing to do. That's right. Now, when are these when are these changes coming into effect? Well, they're happening at different times. We're doing it in a 10-phase process. A couple of stations in Wilkes-Barre, Scranton have already gone, uh, so viewers may uh, uh, have rescanned already, and if not, they may find that those channels will come back when they uh, scan this time. Uh, and then there's, I think, one station that's going to be changing in uh, this current phase, which is this week, uh, and then two more that will be changing in the next couple of months. So viewers should be on the lookout for those notices, and if they notice a channel they're used to seeing goes missing, try rescanning. Jean, if you can give us once again the information on where people can get more information, that would be great. Right. Uh, our website is www.fcc.gov slash TV Rescan. And we've also set up a, a call center uh, with a help desk for folks who may need a little extra help in rescanning and how to do it. They may have forgotten how they did it when they set up their TV. Uh, and the number there is 1-888-CALL-FCC, which is 1-888-225-5322, option number 6. And it's available seven days a week from 8 a.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern Time in English and Spanish. Uh, so if a viewer notices a channel's missing in the evening or on the weekend, uh, they can call that number if they need some help. So they should call you, not the place where they bought the TV. Correct. They, sh they should call the, the call center and, and get help. Now, if they try rescanning and there's a problem, they might want to call their station and see if the station's having any issues. But uh, other than that, the call center should be able to help them with the rescan process. And uh, hopefully, 99% of the time, it brings the channel back. Excellent. Thank you so much. We appreciate the information. Well, and I appreciate your helping to get the word out to your listeners because we want to make sure that they continue to get all their channels and maybe more. Thanks, Jean. And of course, you can always check the websites of your favorite local stations and find out when that is happening. Don't go away when Special Edition returns. The fight to get illegal drugs off the streets continues and one municipality is getting ready to start another phase of reopening. Don't go away. Welcome back to Special Edition. I'm Paula Degnan. Thanks for joining us today. More are heading back to opening up. That includes the city of Pittston. Pittston Mayor Michael Lombardo joined Intercom's Doc and Jesse to find out what's in store now that they're getting the signal that they can begin. All right, so last week in Luzerne County, and hopefully this week in Lackawanna County, it's going to flip over to yellow. And we have the mayor of Pittston, Michael Lombardo, who's on with us right now. So, Mayor, what does that mean? Well, I think it means that we can start to geek our way back to sort of a more normal, start opening up some things. I think give some people an opportunity, particularly as it relates to recreation, to get outside a little bit more. We can really look at our schedule now in terms of some of the upcoming events and I think make adjustments that, you know, we can handle them and pull them off in a way that's safe and compliant with what the regulations are at this point. What about things like restaurants? I saw that Tomato Bar is reopening on Friday. Will there be a limit to how many people can go to a restaurant? How do things like that work? 
Yeah, so what you got to do, essentially, I mean, in the restaurant situation, you'd be looking at outside venues. Restaurants are still not allowed to do internal seating. So you'd be looking at sidewalk seating. In the case of the tomato bar in places like the Red Mill, they have outdoor venues already that are part of their facilities. So when they use those, obviously, they can't use them at maximum capacity. They need to use them in a manner that allows them to have people that come and dine and distance at a safe way. And then, of course, obviously, their staff will need to take the necessary precautions. Certainly the outside, according to the data and research, is safer and better than indoors. Actually, interesting, we're working on this thing. We started it last fall called the Portable Patio, and it's actually a conversion of an old trailer that we have been converting it into essentially a moving deck, and it could be utilized in front of a restaurant that doesn't have enough sidewalk space to accommodate probably up to six or seven tables with the right distance. Do you think most businesses will be back open? I feel really confident. We've been communicating all along with businesses. We right now are doing a crowdfunding initiative called Progress Through Partnership, and we are almost halfway to our goal of $30,000. We're going to take that money and we're going to actually leverage that against some community development money we have, and we'll be able to backfill a little bit and help you know alleviate some of the financial pain that's been caused, and I think we'll be able to help quickly get those businesses back up on their feet. A lot of times we get credit for all this revitalization that's occurring, but the truth is we're lucky to have a tight community and it's not only us i think you'll see that all through northeastern pa and this yeah. personally is why i love this place you know when i first moved here seeing what downtown pittston was and what it is today is night and day i think the message at the end of the day is that it's about the idea of working together not one person can do it we do do some fun things i'm looking forward to getting back out and getting some events going we have some new things that we're going to roll out over the next couple months we've kind of used this quiet time to regroup a little bit can you share any of those with us or is that all top secret you know, I've got people, so if you tell too many people, uh, right. you know, I'll just send them your way. So <laughs> he, you could tell her, but telling. you'd have to kill her, right, Michael? Exactly. No, I mean, we're talking about some partnerships. We've been having this conversation with Kings about rowing down on the riverfront. I can tell you that over the next couple months, I will be announcing securing another institution of higher education to have a satellite operation downtown. And we're creating this thing called the Pittston Art Academy. We have two really cool new housing things that will be rolling out, and both of them have some partial funding in place. We're working on a big jazz and blues festival. We've actually put a elevator in in the fire station. That's important because it gets us to the third floor and the public can use that. There's a really cool basketball court up there that we're going to use as an indoor venue. Wow, you got a lot going on. Yeah, I'm really excited. I'm encouraged. Hats off to everybody that's worked hard. Again, without partners, you can't move forward. Mayor Michael Lombardo, City of Piston, thank you so much for your time this morning. Oh, thank you both very much. I appreciate it. Stay safe, everybody, and healthy. We're getting there. And the city of Pittston also got some other good news earlier this week. A just over $700,000 community development block grant funding came through the Department of Community and Economic Development. It will be used for the Panama Street Reconstruction Project in the city of Pittston. U.S. Attorney for the Middle District of Pennsylvania, David Freed, has been a guest here on Special Edition in the past to bring us updates of different programs that are being utilized throughout the state in order to get drugs off the streets. That includes Project Safe Neighborhoods. 
Earlier this week, an announcement was made that 11 people now face federal indictments for a drug trafficking ring that was operating primarily in Luzerne County. U.S. Attorney Freed joined Intercom's Frank Andrews to give us the details. You know, over the past few weeks, we have been so preoccupied with uh, COVID-19 that we forgot to think about all the illegal drugs and all the problems that were going on. People addicted, people dying out there. And so while we didn't pay attention to that, that didn't mean that law enforcement was not. And on the line with us right now is U.S. Attorney for the Middle District of Pennsylvania, David Freed, to talk about this arrest. Thank you very much for joining us, sir, and tell us about this arrest, sir. Thanks, Frank. Thanks for having me back on. So today we announced uh, the indictment and arrest of 11 uh, individuals in a, in a drug ring uh, based in Wilkes-Barre, you know, source of supply as sort of usual in our cases up there is the New York and New Jersey area. Uh, but we believe this, this uh, takedown will put a pretty big dent in what's going on there in, in the city of Wilkes-Barre in particular and elsewhere uh, throughout Northeast PA. We indicted 11 people last week, uh, did an operation yesterday to do the arrest. There's still one outstanding, but he knows he's wanted and is in contact with law enforcement. Also executed some search warrants, took some more drugs off the streets, took some cars, took some guns, and an additional search warrant down in North Carolina where we got some cash and some guns as well. Now, this was a, a bunch of different law enforcement agencies working together. And, and from what I saw in the newsreads, it was over a, a year-long investigation? Yeah, so what happened with this one was um, things really came together well. started out actually with a drug delivery resulting in death case out of Wyoming County. And DHF Mitchell and his staff asked us to get involved at the federal level. We prosecuted that case and got a conviction on a guy about a year ago. And in, in doing our intel from that case, developed uh, the initials of a dealer who was, was one of the initial suppliers of the drugs in that case. And then turned that into probable cause for a bunch of wiretaps, uh, got a bunch of calls and text messages, and then, you know, sort of traditional police work, and spun it up into into charging these 11 folks with significant amounts of drugs. They're looking at significant jail time, too. Uh, and and I'm, I'm really proud of the collaboration. FBI, State Police, Attorney General, Pittston, Scranton, Wilkes-Barre, Plymouth, uh, just about, and Wilkes-Barre City, of course. What kind of drugs did you take off the street? So heroin, uh, heroin uh, in the search warrants yesterday uh, was pretty much what they had on hand. The indictment alleges sale of, of, of a relatively small amount of crack cocaine, much larger amounts of heroin and fentanyl. You know, it really depends in our area, Frank, on what's coming in. So the supply they happen to have now was heroin, but it's been a lot of heroin and fentanyl over the last year or so. That's unbelievable. David, I, I have to ask you, because, you know, you were the one two years ago that really uh, piqued our interest to do a program on law enforcement appreciation. We did it again this year. And I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, not only am I crushed and saddened by the murder of George Floyd, but also the rogue police officers and the damage they do to all of the good law-abiding ethical police officers that are out there fighting for us. Yeah, Frank, we're, we're at a tough moment. 
uh, here, no matter where you are in the U.S. And, 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 you know, like with a lot of things, we're not impacted as badly here in the Middle District. You know, our, our, our protests and demonstrations have been largely peaceful, and I'm very pleased and proud of everybody uh, for doing that. But the first thing I said today when I stood up in that press conference was that I'm here to stand, and you've heard me say it before, on behalf of law-abiding citizens. And that means law-abiding police, and the vast, vast majority of our police are great people who want to stand up for law-abiding citizens and the protesters. And I sent a message to them saying, listen, I understand that you might not trust us. I understand that you might not want to hear what we're saying, but I want you to hear what I'm saying. And that's we're standing up for you and your lawful right to protest. There's nothing more American than that. Now, if we start causing damage and assaults and attacking police officers, we're going to have to get involved. But I want everybody to understand that our first and foremost duty is to stand up for law-abiding citizens. You know, I said it today. It's a great saying. Everybody counts or nobody counts. And I want everybody out there who's expressing themselves to know that they count, and we're going to stand up for them, too. Well, I, I said on the air, I said, you know, the, one of the first groups that would condemn what happened to Mr. Floyd would be the law-abiding ethical police officers, the law enforcement officials who would condemn that kind of action. Well, 100%, Frank. I mean, if anybody, you know, anybody in my position who's, who's dealt with police use of force issues knows that there are huge problems in what went on uh, there uh, in, in Minneapolis. And uh, it's just devastating. I was talking to the chief in Wilkesbury today, you know, about how he's handling, you know, his younger officers who are coming in to this profession at a time when law enforcement is constantly under attack. And I think it's very important for, you know, the law-abiding citizens out there, people just going about their daily lives who can be really quiet sometimes to maybe step up and say, hey, we support you. Let me tell you this great story. I was leaving today. I was in Wilkesbury for the press conference and heading back to Harrisburg and was going out the door of the police department, and there was a, a, a woman and her son, probably you know, 12 or 13 years old, standing out there in the rain. I opened the door for them, and they looked confused. And I said, can I help you? And they said, and they showed me what they had. They had a couple boxes of cookies. And they said, we're just here to drop this off to show support for our law enforcement officers. And I was just moved by that. You know, I, I sent them in to the department, and I'm sure it was well, most appreciated by the men and women of Wilkesbury. And I just thought that was a wonderful thing, and that really made my day. And I appreciate your work, and I appreciate you calling us and giving us an update on what you call this group peddling poison. Thanks for clearing that up for us, sir. Thanks for the opportunity, Frank. Now, don't go away. We'll be hearing from members of the medical community next on Special Edition. We'll hear from Dr. Rue at Geisinger, and June is Alzheimer's Awareness Month. Dr. Gad Marshall will join us about a study that's ongoing, and you can take part. Don't go away. Next on Special Edition, Dr. Gad Marshall of Bingham and Women's Hospital with an online study to help track Alzheimer's. Well, so uh, Alzheimer's disease is unfortunately an epidemic. I know we're dealing with a different pandemic with COVID-19, but Alzheimer's disease has, has uh, been an epidemic across the world in the U.S. Uh, as well as uh, in uh, uh, our, our local uh, state of Pennsylvania for uh, many years now. Um, what we see is uh, as you age, uh, there is a certain segment of the population that's at greater risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. There are changes in the brain that we can track. Uh, there are clinical symptoms uh, such as memory decline, uh, language difficulties, sense of direction difficulties, uh, changes in mood and behavior, uh, and ultimately decline in your daily functioning uh, that progresses with time. This is an irreversible, uh, continuous um, uh, um, neurodegenerative disease. 
Um, and in recent years, we focused on early detection of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, and this will give me the opportunity to discuss uh, a new web study uh, that we're, we launched about a year ago. When you talk about early detection, that must be something that's very difficult because it can mimic so many other disorders that, that people 65 and older are dealing with. Absolutely. So uh, when you age, uh, you know, you can have uh, uh, changes in your memory and thinking uh, abilities uh, for many reasons, uh, including just getting older. Uh, and so uh, trying to uh, separate that uh, type of change uh, from uh, a disease like Alzheimer's disease is important uh, in terms of uh, whether or not uh, we should be uh, concerned about uh, more aggressive decline down the road and what we can do about it. And so um, what we're uh, offering uh, today uh, is a web study called uh, APT or APT Web Study uh, found on aptwebstudy.org, which is a national effort funded by the NIH uh, to uh, detect the earliest uh, symptoms of Alzheimer's disease uh, with a simple computerized assessment you can take from the comfort of your home. Uh, all you need is a computer or a tablet connected to the, to the Internet. We're looking for individuals uh, age 50 or older who do not have significant symptoms yet. Uh, and so uh, we can track you over time uh, with uh, a 20-minute type of uh, memory test every three months and let you know if, in fact, you are declining. And if so, what you can do about it, uh, either in a clinical setting or in another research setting, such as a prevention trial for Alzheimer's disease. Again, it can mimic so many other things. Are there what you would consider classic Alzheimer's symptoms? Yeah. So, so um, Alzheimer's disease, uh, as you said, classically would present as a consistent decline in your short-term memory, uh, also some language changes early on, such as word-finding difficulties, uh, changes in your sense of direction, uh, and also changes in your mood uh, early on, such as mild depressive symptoms, anxiety, lack of motivation, irritability. Um, early on, we usually uh, don't see decline in daily functioning. Uh, that is something that we see usually when you hit the stage of dementia. Uh, the key is that there's a change from your prior abilities and that it is a consistent change, not just one day that something happens and then you're back to normal. And as far as the study is concerned, then you're looking for people at the age of 50? Yeah, so we're looking for people who are much younger uh, than the typical uh, onset of Alzheimer's disease. So the typical onset in the U.S. is early 70s for the stage of dementia. Uh, for milder memory symptoms, uh, it will be late 60s. We're looking for people uh, who uh, are, uh, you know, way uh, younger than that in terms of uh, potentially having a risk um, that's biological or genetic risk uh, in their family, uh, and we're, we're looking for the very earliest uh, changes in their memory performance that they might not be aware of, that we can detect with, with these sensitive uh, computer tests uh, over time. Uh, and then uh, if, if we do detect a change, uh, we could recommend uh, that uh, either if it's a significant change, they uh, seek clinical care, or uh, they participate in a research study to uh, have more assessments uh, with scans of their brain, say, or, or in fact uh, participate in a trial where we're testing a new drug to prevent Alzheimer's disease in people who do not have significant symptoms yet, but may be at risk. That's another interesting question because there is really no, there's no cure for Alzheimer's, but, and there are drugs now that are that are going to start to be investigated, so cure it, or would that just slow it down? There is no cure. The treatments that we have available currently 
uh, are uh, used at the stage of dementia only, not prior to that, uh, to uh, mildly boost your, your symptoms, uh, uh, improve them for 6 or 12 months, and then they wear off. What we're looking for uh, is uh, uh, medications uh, or interventions that will uh, at least slow the decline over time uh, and, of course, preferably stop it um, altogether, uh, which would be a cure uh, that, you know, we will settle for significantly slowing the decline. If you do that for several years, you can really uh, change the quality of life of older adults. Um, and so uh, that's what we're looking for. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've been doing these type of clinical trials for years, uh, and uh, we've been moving to earlier stages in hopes of, of having more success. When you also mentioned genetics in there, if, um, if a person has had a family member, um, are you able to tell by the study that you're starting, the, the APT study, that um, there might be a predisposition or maybe there's not a predisposition? Is it more possible that there could be something environmental? Well, so we try and take into account uh, several of these factors. Uh, uh, this particular study is pretty streamlined, so we, we can't be exhaustive, and, and all of it is based on answering questions online. And so we're not doing any uh, uh, blood tests or scans of your brain with this particular study, uh, but we try and uh, get demographic information and family history information uh, and also uh, some medical history uh, in order to uh, figure out some of your risk factors. And, and yes, you could have uh, a family history or genetic risk factor. You could have a risk factor from various common medical conditions like elevated blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes, and in fact, from stressors from the environment uh, uh, or your, your life generally. Uh, say uh, you're a caregiver, you can um, be st- stressed from that. Say uh, you have uh, you know mood disorder, that could be a stressor. Uh, your diet and exercise uh, can be- uh, beneficially or uh, detrimentally affect uh, your risk. And so uh, these are various things we look at as well. Dr. Marshall, this is fascinating. And uh, again, the uh, Alzheimer prevention trials, how can people get involved? Where can they find the information? Well, so uh, it's very simple. You just log on to our website, aptwebstudy.org. Uh, you learn about uh, the study, and then if you're interested, uh, you can sign up right there and then and get started. Dr. Marshall, thank you so much, and uh, hopefully in the future you'll be able to come back and we'll talk about uh, what you've been finding out as far as the, uh, the trials are concerned. Thank you for your time and for the opportunity. Intercom's Rocky and Lissa caught up with Dr. Rue from Geisinger. Our current situation, Dr. Rue, is that on Friday, a lot of restaurants are opening for outdoor seating. So what is your advice for uh, servers, masking, distancing, everything? I think this all gets to what the new normal will look like. And and I put the word normal in quotes because I'm not sure there is such a thing as normal. But I do think as we get into this next phase, as things start to reopen, it's more important now than ever before to keep maintaining that distancing and masking effort. And so I see a lot of restaurants getting really creative. Outdoor is obviously a lot better than indoor. And so I know that that's not possible at each and every restaurant, but for the places that are able to accommodate outdoor dining, I think that's a good way to go. Obviously, indoor or outdoor, you still want to maintain the distance. And so, you know, maybe it's fewer people in the restaurant at the same time. Maybe it's just rearranging how you have the flow and the tables and so forth. And then, of course, with the servers and others working in the environment, as well as the patrons themselves, 
I think masking is always the right way to go. Obviously, you have to take off the mask to eat and drink and so forth, but for other times, it's good to have that mask on. Those combination of of different interventions will really help to mitigate and manage that risk. Now, Doctor, what's your take on traveling? I kind of get skeeved out at staying at hotels to begin with, but are you willing to stay at a hotel? Because I'm I'm just thinking about everything we touch in a hotel before COVID-19, the remote control, coffee pot, and all the doorknobs. How comfortable are you to stay at a hotel or a motel? Yeah, I think this question comes up a lot, and I think it's ultimately, not to give you a cop-out answer, but I think it depends. And it's ultimately a balancing of, obviously, you're always weighing the risks with the benefits, and one of the benefits is how essential is the travel. And, And to the extent that it's essential, obviously, then you shift into the mode of how do you mitigate and minimize those risks. And I do think there are ways to do that, whether it's a hotel or other places. Obviously, you have to still be mindful of the same concepts of masking and distancing and so forth. But I think it means when you get into the room, you do a proper wipe down with the right kind of antibacterial kinds of bleach-based products or alcohol-based products that we've been recommending all along. And it's in those high-touch environments, whether the faucets, the handles. I mean, you mentioned a lot of them. I think that's exactly where I would go with that. And then maybe even doing some things like opening the windows to circulate the air before you head into the room. So I would do those things and maybe leave for an hour or so, let the air kind of circulate again, if those things are feasible, and then re-enter. I think those are probably the best ways to minimize the exposure. And then, of course, frequent washing of hands, disinfecting of other surfaces. I think those all play as well. But at the end of the day, you have to make a decision, each person, how essential is the travel and do you want to balance those benefits against the the risks that that would come with it. Rocky was already the dude who brought Lysol wipes to a hotel room, even before all uh, of this. So <laughs> this isn't I, helping. I try not even try not to think about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll be honest with you. I mean, even during flu season, even apart from COVID, that's probably not a bad practice. (laughs) And the next question I have for you, Dr. Rue, comes courtesy of my niece and nephew, Ben and Amy. They're still in online school right now, but pretty soon they're going to be done. And they're already bugging mom and dad to go out to play with their friends, to do baseball, et cetera. So, and their folks are hesitant. So what advice would you have for parents? I mean, their kids want to go out and play. I think this is another one where it's a balancing and it's a balancing of the risks and the benefits. And obviously people have been cooped up for quite some time. And especially with children, I know that that can be difficult to keep them engaged and, and occupied. And, and we have school-age children ourselves, so this is always a discussion for us as well. I think it's the same balancing act of what are the risks, what are the benefits, and are there ways to mitigate the risks? And I would say the ways to mitigate the risks are to try to steer towards outdoor activities versus indoor. Indoor for prolonged periods of time, in close proximity, we know that those things carry higher risk. And so if they're able to be outside, I think still masked is ideal. And obviously, however you can maintain distance, that would be good. I know that's a challenge sometimes with kids and play environments, but if there's a way to maintain some distancing and ensure that they're masked and in an outdoor environment, then I think you're doing pretty well as far as keeping those risks to a minimum. Good deal. And one final question, out-of-town visitors. I'm trying to get my sister and her boyfriend a visit. They live in Manhattan, so of course they're still having a uh, big issue there. If they don't show any symptoms for a couple of weeks, they're good to go or 
Should they be tested before they come visit? We, we keep going back and forth on this. Yeah, I think this is trickier, and it's because there's always the risk of asymptomatic transfer, meaning people could have the infection, could be contagious, and yet not show symptoms. That risk is lower, but that is still out there, and that's the nature of community spread, which is the phenomenon where the virus can be spread inside the community, and we know that that's true. And so I would start with the same decision-making process of how necessary is the interaction, balancing the risks against the benefits. Testing is tricky as well because that's just a single snapshot in time, and are they at the right course, assuming they have the virus, are they at the right time period in that course to have tested positive. And given that it's only a single snapshot, you know, will they subsequently become positive? I think those are all things that are very difficult to determine in a definitive way. Ways to limit the risk is, again, encouraging masking even inside the home in that regard. And I think the safest is probably a quarantine. And that's how a lot of areas or even countries are doing it is if, you, if you're a visitor from somewhere else, you're quarantined for two weeks to make sure you're not symptomatic reduces that risk considerably. And so I think it's a combination of those factors. But if, it's, if the visit is absolutely necessary, then I think you'd ideally still want to be mindful of not sharing food, not sharing cups, ideally a separate bathroom, masking and and distancing even in that home environment. And if it's feasible to have a two-week quarantine period, which I know oftentimes is difficult logistically, I think that's going to be the right answer there. I love my sis here, but two weeks will drive each other crazy. (laughs) Yeah. You want to keep loving your family, in which case the two weeks may not be the right way to go. I appreciate the advice, so thank you. Thank you, Dr. Rue, so much. You are wonderful. Hopefully we get to chat again soon. Yeah, I hope so, too. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories, a production of Intercom Communications. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com.